another edition of Florida Funders Angel Investing Podcast. I'm really excited about our guest today, Steve Raymond. I'm going to get in, introduce you to Steve here very shortly. I've known Steve for a lot of years. He's a good friend. We go back a long way, and he has a, a really great story to share with you all. And I'm excited again about uh, having Steve on the show. For those of you who are new to Florida Funders, we're a hybrid between a venture capital fund and an angel network of investors. So what we're on a mission to do is find, fund, and build the next generation of great technology companies focused on Florida, but we do invest outside of Florida as well. You can check us out at floridafunders.com if you want to learn anything else about Florida Funders. So with that, again, our, our guest today's got a, great, a really special story, and he's in a very elite club in that he's one of these founders, entrepreneurs that took a company from very little next to nothing to mega billions. And there aren't many people that can say they've done that. I mean, there are not many people I can even think of that can, you know, you're in the likes of like Bill Gates and, and Michael Dell. Even Steve Jobs didn't do that. And Zuckerberg, I guess, would be in that club. Steve Raymond is a, a local Florida guy. He grew up here in St. Pete. He started a company with his father or his father started and he's joined very early right out of college. And that company, Tech Data, exists to this day. It's a, I think, a $40 billion company today, Steve. Is that kind of the annual sales? Somewhere in the mid to upper 30s, it's private now. So nobody knows for sure who's not in it. But I think it's probably upper 30s. Okay. And you were the CEO from until what time? Well, I think officially CEO from 86 to about 06. But I was really running it in effect from the time I got there in 81. In 1981, Steve and I both grew up in what I consider, I don't know if you consider it, but I consider it the PC, personal computer or microcomputer revolution. But the Apple II came out in like the late 70s, right? IBM introduced their first PC in 81. So we kind of grew up in that business together. And I was actually a very small customer of Steve's back in the early 80s. Timing is everything. And even though you're a relatively young 62, I'm 65 and not that I would compare myself to them otherwise, but Jobs and Gates are both 65. So the success that I had, and certainly that they had to some degree, was everything about time and place. You know, there was this fantastic new marketplace just opening up that was going to grow, grow, grow for the next 20 years, almost nonstop. And so if you could put together the right team, the right strategy, execute decently, you had a lot of runway. Well, I think you're being pretty humble, but for those of you who weren't around back then, prior to this personal computer revolution kicking off at this period of time we're discussing, the only people that had access to computers, and Steve, I'm sure you remember this well, were really large corporations, large to medium-sized corporations and universities. They were very expensive machines. They were, they were hard to use. The, the industry was dominated with, by companies like IBM and Digital Equipment Corporation, and then along comes the PC, and that changes just everything. Now, every small business can, can own and afford a computer. Every home can. They're not hard to use. The software is easier, thanks to the likes of VisiCalc and Lotus123 and things like that. And what was the industry growing back then? It was like 30 40%. If you weren't growing your business, we were both in the business. I was on a different end of it than you. If you weren't growing your business 30%, you were losing market share. That's right. I would say uh, probably for two decades, although there was a big slump, of course, the dot-com bust around 2001, but probably from 81 all the way to that point, it was nonstop growth in the double-digit range. Yeah, the first year I went to Comdex, which was the big 
show in our, our industry that I know you went to every year for years and years in Vegas. The first year I went, I think was 81. Gates was the keynote speaker. There were maybe a couple thousand of us there. And fast forward like four or five years to 85 or 86, there were 250,000 people there. You couldn't get a hotel. You couldn't get a cab. Comdex was the biggest, I think the biggest show in, in the world, only besides maybe the Consumer Electronics Show. It was just an incredible time and an incredible run. Isn't that how um, Sheldon Adelson got his start? Wasn't he running Comdex? And then as part of the show, he decided to buy the Sands Hotel and from there actually exited the the show business and got more into hotel and gambling. The richest guys in the world. Yeah, that's he just passed away. Yeah. And that's my understanding too. And and he sold Comdex, if I remember, right at the perfect time to SoftBank. He sold it right before the dot-com bust, like in like 98 or 99. <laughs> he, he, he had, like you said, timing. Well, Steve, again, you're in the likes of very few companies, people that can scale a business like this. I mean, even Sergey and Larry out of Google, they brought in, you know, they probably didn't bring in, but their investors or their board insisted they bring in Eric Schmidt to build Google. And then they took it over, you know, maybe a decade later, whatever it was. I mean, there aren't many people, again, I, I'm hard pressed to think that people have done this. There have to be some serious lessons you've learned along the way. And we have a lot of founders that listen to our, our podcast. What are your favorite lessons that you learned on that, on this incredible journey? That's a big question. Can I come back? Here and I'll work <laughs> After I think about it, some. Yeah, you can think about it. Well, let me, uh, why do you think about that one? How about this one? So, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you were the largest distributor for Microsoft or one of the largest, maybe you and Ingram? Probably us and Ingram. Ingram uh, over the years was usually larger than we were in most markets. And then in aggregate was always larger. Even today, they're probably generate more revenue than tech data a little bit. But one of the largest distributors for Apple, one of the largest distributors for Hewlett Packard, IBM, all these companies. You met some characters along the way. I'm sure you. Do you have any great stories about about Gates or Jobs or any of these guys? I actually never met Jobs. I never and did. That was on purpose. You probably <laughs> heard this story that his folks wanted to keep him away from the channel because once he figured out how much money we were selling, making selling his products, he would try to squeeze us out somehow. So they said, <laughs> "Don't get around him. Nothing good can come of it." Just <laughs> Trust us and work with us. So I never actually met him. I did meet Gates a couple times, but more in a kind of structured setting where it might be a small panel of 10 customers and him. And you know, he was the same as you see on TV, pretty much the same kind of guy. What you see is what you get with him. Yeah. Um, but he was clearly a, you know, a different kind of thinker, had a different presence in a room than what you encounter typically in the corporate world. Well, the other thing that I think is very unique about you is a lot of people, when they think of successful founders and CEOs and people that run run businesses like you've had, Fortune 500, take it public, Fortune 500 company. I mean, you know, they're, they're these really high ego type A personalities. You're not like that at all. You're actually, and this is my assessment, I've known you for decades, is much more cerebral, much more analytical. You're not an egomaniac by any means. If anything, you're, you're humble, which I, I always appreciate in people. So how did that style work and how were you able to be effective with that style in, in growing your business? Well, for sure, my default mode is more introvert than extrovert. So it's not a natural motion for me to 
stand in front of an audience and command the room, it's usually um, an uncomfortable feeling for me. But, you know, over the years, I got more comfortable with it, better with it. But, you know, I actually was on the phone today with an old friend of mine, Bob Anastasi, who was the analyst that brought us public back in 87. And we're still close friends. We ski together, fish together and so on. And we were reminiscing a little bit, as old guys are wont to do. And we were talking about a friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours, who I probably respected as much as anybody as I've ever met in our industry, Michael Krasny, who was the founder of CDW and sold it for billions, became a billionaire. I don't presume to compare myself to him, but we were comparing him to some other personalities we both knew or know in the industry. And what I always liked about Mike, and I hope I share this in common with him, is just an intense driving curiosity. You know, he never tries to walk in a room and impress people with how much he knows. In fact, it's to the contrary. He's just kind of one of the guys. But if a subject gets interesting, he starts asking questions and he kind of holds you accountable in a way for your answer. So if you're like too flippant, he'll challenge you. Well, what about this? What about that? And go, oh, yeah, okay. So you realize you have to up your game a little bit when you're having it. It's a fun, friendly way. It's not like he's aggressive. It's just he's really, really curious about it. Mm-hmm. And because he wants to know how things work, he's kind of an engineering mind, you know, how, how, how do these things all fit together? And why do you see it that way? And then how can you see the market going that direction? And I like to think that I have a little bit of that um, same trait, mm-hmm. um, kind of an intense curiosity, be curiosity about people, about their businesses, how they spend time, how they see the world. And I try to be, you know, friendly when I my challenge them like you and I were talking about vaccines before we got going to get a little different perspective, but I'm respectful of different points of view. At least I try to be. So I think that for me, when you talk about any success I might've had, I think the first part of it was being curious. I remember once I went to a speech and sometimes somebody will say something that stays with you. And this was a, you know, some guy from corn Ferry, I think who was talking about successful traits of CEOs and, and one of them was this curiosity. Another was a kind of humility. A guy who doesn't ne- or gal doesn't necessarily need to, to uh, uh, have the spotlight on him or her all the time. Yeah. Another one was the ability to see patterns. And if you're not asking questions, if you're not learning, you don't have an opportunity to see patterns. Mm-hmm. So you have to have some requisite level of intelligence to make connections and see how things relate to each other. And then the last thing he said, and I think this was probably true of a lot of my work at Tech Data was a bias towards action, right? So you're curious, you see some patterns, and then you move. Yeah. And particularly in an industry that's growing at 20, 30%, you have to move. Yeah. That, that one of my other passions is food, and I invest in quite a few restaurants. And, and the restaurant industry is very frustrating when it comes to how quickly they move. And I always I say to the one partner I have in that business, I'm like, if you were in, if you were in tech, you'd get killed. <laughs> like you got, you have to move quickly. You got to make decisions and, and move. And that whole industry is very, very slow to do that. But you know, almost any other industry is slower. I'm on the board of a couple companies, one of which is more tech related and just a big contract manufacturer. The other is an industrial distributor that sells to contractors and OEMs and, you know, industrial wire and cable and electrical products. And that business is slow. <laughs> They're doing things today the way they were doing them more or less 20 years ago, some changes. And, you know, I always wonder whether the industry is going to get blindsided by an upstart with um, really slick, new disruptive technology. 
Yeah, probably. It'd be, you know, be. We're starting to see it in the restaurant industry with the, if you're familiar with the, the software in that business, it's mostly either Oracle or MCR, or the legacy software products yeah. that most point of sales run, and they are just horrible. So now there's this whole cloud-based uh, line of software. Toast is one of the big players. I don't know if you've ever heard of they're, they're just taking market share like that because yeah. they're just, their product is so much better. But I, I'm going to get to Jable. I want to talk about Jable that you mentioned companies you're on the board of. I, I did want to touch on that. But one of the questions I was thinking about, because I was around back then, I was buying from you, uh-huh. uh, tech data, but I was buying from your competitors. And what, what our listeners might not know is how competitive that industry was. I mean, there were a lot of distributors of technology products besides tech data and Ingram. I mean, there was uh, Intelligent Electronics and Maricel, and I don't even remember, like Hamilton, whatever. I can't even remember them all. And you and Ingram were the survivors. I mean, all the other ones are gone pretty much that I know of. What do you attribute that to? It's a little like self-knowledge. You know, you have to know what your strengths are and your weaknesses and play to your strengths. And I think that also applied to the business model. I, you know, we really needed to understand what was going to make the difference in our success or not, why people bought from us and how we could compete successfully, therefore, against the others. And it wasn't because... We had IP, you know, it wasn't because we had a a brand or a special trademark. It wasn't because we even had unique access to products which were not available anywhere. We had to assume that everybody could get any product and sell it to anyone. So if that's the case, how do you create value? And the answer to that is going to be different depending on which industry you're competing in. In our case, it was all about sort of time and place delivery, execution, low cost. So when you call probably when you called us or you called Ingram, the prices were pretty similar, mm-hmm. but who had the product today, who could give me credit, who would, could guarantee I would have the product tomorrow, who could provide some modicum of technical support mm-hmm. um, if there were a problem or could arrange for you know, a repair or a replacement if you had some sort of pro- a problem and could do it accurately on the first time. And so it really... I, you know, figured out, our team figured out pretty early on, oh, this is a game of execution. That's what's, that's the fuel that's going to make this business run. It's not about these other things I mentioned. It's all about execution. And you have to define the kind of KPIs, you know, critical KPIs. I don't know. I'd say key performance indicators and, and create the dashboards that really measure your performance against your customers' demands and expectations. And we got pretty good and very systematic at that. You know, I mean, the margins are ridiculously low. You're talking gross margins in five and sub five percent range, operating of one and one one to between one and two percent. So you're working constantly in that environment with basis points, not whole percentage points. And you know that forces you to be way more analytical and detail oriented in all the little pieces and parts that make your business go. Yeah, well, you guys did it well, and I watched it. It was, it was very impressive. And a lot of your competitors didn't, and they went away. And what I thought, looking from the outside in at Tech Data, what I thought you guys did exceptionally well vis-a-vis your competitors, you really focused on what you did. Many of those other distributors got into, like I sold my first company to Intelligent Electronics. I was on the other side of the business where we were customer-facing and going into enterprises and companies and putting in their computer networks and representing Microsoft and Cisco and companies like that. They started buying guys like us and they got away from what, you know, what they really, really were good at. There's always temptations to 
to take your model in a different direction, you know, because the grass is always greener, perhaps, or you might be under pressure with the existing model. And so you, you thrash around looking for a way to extend it by time, broaden your reach, et cetera. But I think early on, you know, we came to the conclusion that there would be no such thing as exclusive access to even the premier lines like IBM, Apple, and HP, that at some point, even though the first 10 or 15 years they were denied to us, you know, they were sold exclusively through yeah. a handful of aggregators, you know, and as much as we would try to beg, borrow, and steal and plead with the vendors, they wouldn't give us the product line until commoditization hit the market and they finally realized they needed to work through us and at the reseller level through people like CDW, I mentioned before. Yeah. And that was kind of the death knell of these other companies that had sort of built their model more around exclusive access to premier products and building out a low-cost logistics machine, which is what we did. So they went away Mm -hmm. after a while. And then, you know, people got distracted or they organized their model wrong. So they couldn't take cost out of it. They couldn't achieve the uh, consistent levels of execution we were able to. I mean, there was a lot of luck involved. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, when I, I can think back and remember a few conversations where kind of the light bulb went off with me and I thought, oh, I better do it this way, not that way, or we could get in trouble. <laughs> you know, and then you look back and go, oh, that was a good decision. Well, I like your, your humility in, in saying that, that there was luck involved. I think there's always luck involved in part of timings, the luck and you know, all of business, I think. When I think about lessons learned in, in scaling a company like that, I got to believe that a lot of it was about your team. What can you share with us about what you learned about people and managing people? And I'm sure, well, I know because I was a, I was a customer of yours. I know that over the, as the company grew, sometimes you, you outgrew people and you had to replace them. And Yeah, we did some of that along the way, for sure. A lot of the success that I had was the result of being able to build a really strong team. And the only way to build a strong team is, first of all, you have to pay the right, pay them enough competitively. It took me a few years to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And then try to attract this, you know, the strongest athletes you can to be part of your team and then give them a lot, as much, um, delegate as much authority and responsibility as you possibly can to allow them to run their part of the business. You know, and then to collaborate with them very closely to make sure we're all on the same page where we think, um, you know, where, where we think the industry is going. And then we're developing a plan to drive towards there. And then it's a question of, you know, running your play and checking your progress along the way. But as long as we all knew where we were going, we all agreed how we were going to get there. Then we could all, each of us, take our own individual orders, as it were, and, and go off and, and drive the execution and make it happen. And so I, I mean, I was very detail oriented, but not in a, I don't like to think anyway that I was in a directive way or commanding way, like do this, do that. It was more like, hmm, we said we were going to do this. How are we doing on that point? You know, mm-hmm. I would explore that a little bit, see if, you know, we're really on the right track or maybe we've overlooked something. Maybe we can do this thing a little better, whatever it is. Well, congratulations. What a great story. You know, it's been fun to watch and I'm sure it was fun for you. Is there one accomplishment? in your career that stands out that you're most proud of? I'm pretty proud, I guess, that I was able to to run the company for so long, you know, to shepherd its growth. I mean, my first year, we were less than $2 million in revenue and we actually were losing money and kind of on the way to going out of business. And so I think the thing I was, I'm, I must be proud of, the most proudest of now that I think about it, 
is just engineering that turnaround. In the very early days when I really knew nothing about business, but maybe just through common sense or some more desperation, came up with a few ideas that allowed us to veer away from the edge and get the company back under control. What year was it? Well, I started in mid-81, and I would say it was, I think it was September of that year when we were still a retail distributor of data supplies, you know, dispacks and no, computer geez. tap paper and computer ribbons and so on in Tampa Bay. It was a very small business for the most part. And, um, you know, we had all of our, uh, virtually all of our salespeople abandon us and, and flee to a competitor and take all their records, take all the customers with them. And, you know, we came into business Monday morning and the phones didn't ring. I mean, we were like out of business practically. And so to take it from that point of absolute bottom, rock bottom, to where we were going public actually six years later, I think is pretty amazing, even when I look back on it. Yeah, that is that is amazing. That is really amazing. Let's switch subjects a little bit. So you have a very famous daughter, or pretty famous daughter. Your daughter, Monica, went to Juilliard, and she's yes. star of the, or was star of the, TV show Chicago Fire. I understand she's doing a new TV series. You must be very proud of her. Where did she get all her talent from? I'm thinking this must come from her mother. (laughs) I think you're right. (laughs) Ironically, she's as strong a singer as she is an actress, and there's no way the voice came from me. (laughs) Her mom's voice isn't all that great, so it's hard to say. I mean, she's definitely talented. I remember maybe you were there. I was being honored by the... um, I think it was Gulf Coast Jewish Family Services or something uh, like a couple of years ago. I was there. She gave a yeah, and so and she came up and you know gave us gave a speech and I was like, gosh, she's really good at this. <laughs> I mean, I think she rehearsed it. And she knew her lines and she you know put the emphasis in the right place. But yeah, she's had a great career. She started out with a show called Lie to Me for three years and then was part of an ensemble cast in Chicago where she lived for six years making this one show and then. Decided she didn't want to be a, a TV firewoman or fireman for the rest of her life or until the show ran and jumped ship. And now she's actually, as they say, number one on the roster, or the lead actress in a Stars Network show called Hightown, which is kind of darker and edgier, but it allows her to kind of flex her acting muscles a little more. And she also does some directing. So she's directed a few episodes of like Law and Order and FBI and actually... Oh, wow. In this second episode, second season, they're filming now in Wilmington, North Carolina. There was one episode where she, of course, starring in all of them, but also directed. And so she's, uh, she likes to keep the plate spinning. The more the merrier for her. Well, we know where she gets that from. <laughs> Boy, she's, she is, she's really busy, although I got a distressing call from her yesterday. They've been filming for probably four or four and a half months. And uh, they had to shut down production for a couple of weeks because of COVID. Oh. So she's on quarantine and apartment for the, I think probably about 10 more days until they find out, you know, who can, who can go back to work. She doesn't have it though. Actually, we don't know. Her makeup artist tested positive and the makeup artist is in her face all the time. Yeah. So her test was maybe this morning or yesterday and she's going to call me this later today and let me know if she has it or not. Well, hopefully she's negative. We'll keep her in thoughts and prayers. Yeah. Uh, I want to touch on Jay Bull Circuit. So you're, you're a board member there for 20 years almost, I think. Probably too long, 23, 24 years. And most people don't, probably never heard of Jay Bull Circuits, like most people never heard of Tech Data because you guys were so behind the scenes. But 
my understanding of table circuits, uh, $20 billion Fortune 500 company is one of the largest component manufacturers for the iPhone, correct? Yeah, Jable, I think last year did around $28 billion. I'll say we, we have uh, probably a quarter of a million employees around the world. Wow. Um, the majority in China. We operate 100 factories around the world. Oh my God. And each one of these factories can be making up to 1,000 discrete items for 20 or 30 different customers. People like Hewlett Packard, Johnson & Johnson. I think we're Tesla's biggest electronics supplier and then Apple is our largest customer, but we do a whole range of products for them. Um, a lot of them can be uh, circuit board oriented, but we also do some milling and molding of high precision plastics. So like the case for an iPhone or these earbuds, which I'm not wearing now, we make all of this and probably do the electronics internally. So yeah, it's an amazing, an amazing company. Yeah. It's a real honor to serve them all these years. I'm sure that's been a great learning experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Serves your curious mind. <laughs> yeah. You know, all companies are, that share a lot of traits, you know, you, at, at the governance level, you know, or at the board level, you know, you have to worry about uh, evaluating the CEO, paying him or her, succession planning, team building, strategy, risk management. I'm sure the audit committee there, as well as at Wesco. So, you know, you worry about are the numbers good. So all that stuff is is like, but then companies can be very, have very different individual personalities. You know, where a culture in one place like Jabil is very decentralized, uh-huh. very empowering culture. And the way they run their customer accounts is quite different apparently than, than others in the industry. So I've learned a lot there about, um, oh, international business, about manufacturing, about team building, a whole range of different subjects. I thought I'd switch gears again and uh, spend a little bit of time on angel investing because quite a few of our listeners are avid angel investors. And, and really, the purpose of our podcast in a lot of ways, it's, it's all about what you call curiosity, call learning, how we can learn from each other, what are the best practices. I know you've done some investing. You're an investor in Florida Funders. Thank you. We appreciate that. I just thought any lessons learned there on the investing side that you would like to share? Well, they say that. Um the most important consideration is that you're investing in people. You know, and the people have to have a good idea. They have to be able to execute. But I don't do a lot of tech investing. I actually individually, private investing, do more with in real estate where I'm a limited partner in funds or buildings and so on. And for me, it's all about the individual. Do I trust this person? Are they high integrity? Are they smart? Are they experienced? Will they always do the right thing vis-a-vis their partners. Those are really, really important considerations for me when I pick a partner in real estate and even to a lesser degree, say if it's in a venture capital fund or, or a hedge fund, and I have a few of those. So it, for me, it's, it's, it's really about the people and then it all flows from there. So you're more about the jockey than the horse. We talk a lot about that on our podcast and we hear that a lot. I think the one thing that... W- maybe tech is a little different than real estate. I don't know if you would agree with this, is that in tech, particularly, the, in, in maybe harking back to the early days, what you were saying about going from 2 million to IPOing in six years, you know, there's just tremendous adversity that's coming. I mean, as I like to say to founders, you're going to get knocked down, you're going to get punched in the face, you know, or you're going to have the resiliency to get up. You're absolutely right. Tech is different because it's, um, 
typically it's about IP and know-how and sometimes branding, but particularly creating a software solution. I mean, most of tech now is software. Back in our days, it was more hardware. Mm-hmm. And the hardware was somewhat commoditized, and which is why I looked at our business as a high volume logistics play, more than a tech play, if you will. Yeah. Fast forward, hardware is ubiquitous and for all practical purposes free, right? Because you can kind of plug it into the plug into the wall and get Amazon yeah. Web Services. Yeah. Right. And so it's like a utility. So it's a completely different world today in which um, people are still important, but you're absolutely right. Does the software solution really fit a need? What sort of barriers to entry are out there? You know, can you defend against them? Do you have the team that can take the product forward? All the things that you work with day in and day out. Yeah, and we and that's what we're trying to figure out when we're looking at, at founders is do do they have the right stuff? Do they are they tough? Are they I remember one of the other guests I've had on the show is Jason Calacanis. And Jason was one of the first investors, the early investors in Uber. He put $25,000 in Uber that turned into $175 million at the IPO. <laughs> Talk about a, a good return. But I was asking, talking to him about that. I said, well, you know, tell me the Uber story. Why did you invest in, in Uber? And he said, I, I didn't even know what Uber was. I had no idea what Jason was. I, or Travis Galanik. He said, I just met Travis. And I said, this guy is he's tough and he's not going to lose. He's going to be successful. He'll figure out and find a way to win. And he said, that's why, that's why I invested. I, I didn't even know what he was doing. Well, Travis was probably a little too scrappy. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a little too competitive and not not sufficiently collaborative when he should have been. Yeah, but, you know, that's awesome, right? He brought it from an idea to being a, something that changed the world. Unbelievable. The first time I heard about Uber, I was like, I didn't get it at all. I was like, wait, some stranger is going to pick me up at my house in their car and take me to a restaurant or an airport and why would I do that? <laughs> I just didn't get it at all. But like you said, it's changed the world. I think uh, we're running out of time, Steve. Is there any last things you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, this has been great. I love your story. It's been so much fun to watch. And you do what you've accomplished. And you made it, you made it look easy, my friend. You've really made it look easy. Well, you know, that's actually an interesting point is a lot of things that are hard and worth doing look very easy on the outside. I bet if I watched your golf swing, because I know you're a really good golfer, but I, and I've never seen you swing, but I bet it looks very easy the way you swing because you're good. And, and I think it's probably the same with the business from the outside looking in. It looks easy once you see it up and running, but you don't appreciate how many you know, hurdles the team had to overcome to get it to that point. And you know, I see that. I, mean, I provide a little bit of uh, just maybe a, a sounding board for a friend of mine's son who's uh, in a tech startup and it's a complicated one, the software, the solution, the regulatory environment, and they had to kind of learn it by stubbing their toe along the way, you know, kind of school of hard knocks. They're getting there, but it's been a lot of work and, you know, hopefully they'll be successful and we'll look back five years and go, wow, unbelievable story. But, oh man, it's, it can be a pretty painful road, you know, until you reach that point. There's- but you have to be, you know, you have to be tenacious and persevere and persistent and, and believe believe in your story and believe in your strategy and your people. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, the road to the top is never straight up, right? It's a, it's got its ups and downs, especially for entrepreneurs. There's always those challenges. And, and uh, that's what, that's what it takes to be a great entrepreneur to be able to overcome the, the diversity and all that. Right. Yep. Well, and then also be able to flex and turn and 
Pivot. Pivot. <laughs> pivot is the word. Thank you. Took the word out of my mouth. Pivot. All right, Steve, this has been great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. To our listeners out there, thank you for joining us for another episode of our Florida Funders Angel Investing in Florida podcast. If you want to know more about Florida Funders, go to floridafunders.com. Would love for you to join us either as an investor or a founder of your founders or easy way to apply and get in our process for funding. If you're an investor, there's an easy way to register and start to look at some of the companies that we're funding and participate. So we'd welcome you to join us. Thank you again and have a great day. 